0: And you can take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians. This morning we've been focusing on God's love and the love that should be in us as a result of understanding and experiencing God's love. In some people, we just finished a survey of the Ten Commandments, understanding that the Ten Commandments were built on the premise of loving God and loving other people. The first four of the commandments are about our relationship and how we love God. The second second part of the commandments, or the last six of the commandments, are about how we live in relationship to our love for other people. So when we talk about love... In the Christian's life, we have to come from the standpoint of what does it mean when it says that God loved us? First John is a dissertation on love. If you want to understand how God loved us and why God loved us and how we should love Him, First John is a great place to be. But here we come to Philippians chapter 1, and Paul's writing this letter to the church at Philippi. And in his introduction, he exhorts them, To love, We're going to start at verse 9 and just read through verse 11. And what he's asking them, or what he exhorts them to, what he prays for, really, is that their love should abound. So if you go to verse 9, and we're going to read just three verses, verses 9 through 11, Paul says this, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Let's take a minute to continue on. Our Father, we come before you now, ready to look into your word, and we ask that you would just show us the truth that we need to hear. Lord, I pray that you would intervene now, that you would send your spirit to guide us in your truth, that you would show us the importance and the lessons of this passage, that we might learn to live the way you want us to learn. Father, I submit myself to you now. I pray that you would use me as your spokesperson, that your words might be in my mouth, that you would remove me from the process so that your truth might be proclaimed today. Lord, we ask for your presence, for your power, for your understanding, to just guide us through the next hour. And Lord, we give this time to you, and we'll give you the praise for what's accomplished and for what you teach us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Abounding in love is Paul's prayer, that you might abound in love. And if I was to ask you, we're a week late on this, by the way, this is a message that I started preparing for last week because we were right after Valentine's Day, and everybody's focused on love. But I want us as Christians to understand what this word love means. okay? And I know we've spoken a lot on this, and I've taught a lot on this, but this passage in Philippians, Paul expounds a little bit on not just abounding in love, but what does it look like and what it results in when we understand what true love is all about. So if I were to ask you what's the most important we should be learning as a Christian, what would your answer be? People have different things, but basically what it comes down to is what is the greatest commandment? When the Pharisees came to Christ, and they said, okay, we know all the commandments, we kept all the commandments, which one is the greatest one? Christ didn't pick out one of the ten. What He said to them was, the foundation of all of the commandments wrapped together. Number one, first of all, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our might. And then number two, if we love God, then we'll love our neighbor as ourself, or we'll love our neighbor as we should, as God loves them. So there's one overwhelming and overruling principle that should be the hallmark and the foundation of everything we do. And that comes from... Those two principles, loving God and loving our neighbor. This morning, I want to focus specifically on the loving God part from Philippians chapter 1 and these verses that Paul teaches here. I want to take this principle of love more in depth and apply this to this principle of love in evaluating everything we do. Are we truly loving God in how we live? And are we truly loving our neighbor or all those around us? and how we live. And Paul gives us kind of a summary of what that will look like right here. So actually what I want to do is take verses 9 through 11 and tear them apart. We'll look at phrase by phrase and word by word. This morning we read 1 Corinthians 13, and eventually we're going to compare what we saw in 1 Corinthians 13 to what Paul's saying here, and see the similarities and what Paul's actually teaching that love is. So we're going to start at verse 9. He says, And I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. That your love may abound yet more and more. First, I want to take the word love. This is one of the most misunderstood words in the English language. People, as a whole, do not understand this word love. They think it's a feeling, they think that it's an experience, there's fireworks, there's emotion. Okay? That can be part of it. But real love starts with a commitment. And it's the commitment that God made to us when he sent his son. John 3.16, the most popular verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world. And what did it cause him to do? That love, that self-sacrificing desire to meet our needs, caused him to send his only son to die on the cross for us. Because we needed what Christ offered. So God set the example of love for us. Agape is the Greek word. Agape love. There's three different words, and I'm not going to get into it now, but the agape is singularly attached to God. There's no other person or entity in the entire universe or in all of creation that embodies love, this agape love, except God. And this is what Paul's calling us to. What he's saying is, I pray that God's agape love, God's self-sacrificing desire... To meet the needs of someone else is what abounds in you. Love. Self sacrificing desire to meet the needs of the one you love. That's a definition that a professor in college shared with us, and it I think it's a very good summary of what love comes down to. Self sacrificing. It's not about me. I'm willing to give up whatever it takes. That's what God did. A desire. It's not just a duty. It's a desire. This is what I desire. I'm willing and I desire to sacrifice for the good of others. The desire is to meet the needs of the the object, the one loved, the person loved. And that's exactly what God demonstrated to us. So Paul says, This is the kind of love that I want to abound. The word abound here is to be in excess or to excel or to overflow. Okay? Think of filling up a cup with water. If you were going to abound with water, you would turn that faucet on and let it go all the way up to the top and just let it overflow, and that's the picture Paul's creating here. I want your love to be so much in you that it's not just filling you up, but that it's overflowing in your life. You can't help but show love because so much is there. That's what this word abound means. Uh, One commentator put it this way, that it may be like a river perpetually fed with rain and fresh streams so that it continues to swell and increase till it fills all its banks and overflows to feed the adjacent plains. You've seen pictures in the news probably of uh, different rivers in the world and in our country, Mississippi. When we have a lot of rain, the river fills up and overflows its banks. The Nile River in Egypt. The people actually depend on this for their sustenance. The, The river has to fill up. It has to overflow and flood the surrounding area, in order to to fertilize it and to, to make it so that they can grow things there. And that's exactly the picture that Paul's using here. I want your love to overflow and flood other people so that they are encouraged, that they are spiritually fertilized, if you will, and made fertile so that they can grow. That's what Paul's saying. It's not just having a lot of love, but it's being so filled with love that we can't stop it from overflowing to other people. Okay, That's this word, abound. So what he says is, I want your love to abound. And then he describes how he wants it to abound. He says, yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now the word knowledge here we read already this morning. all right. And next week we're going to look at 1 Corinthians and Romans chapter 14 to make it more personal as far as our relationships with each other. But here's this word knowledge. I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians 8 tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow. I would love to do it tomorrow. Next week. Lord willing, okay? Um, but 1 Corinthians 8 starts with, some of us have knowledge. But we have to be careful because knowledge is up. But he says here, I want you to abound in love and knowledge. Okay, the word knowledge here is an acknowledgement of what is right. An acknowledgement of what is right. And that basically comes down to knowing God's principles of truth. If we are to have true love, we have to abound in knowing God's principles, knowing God's truth. Love doesn't come as we just pray for it and God pours it in us. Love comes as we understand who God is and letting Him change us into Christ's character, letting, us, letting Him fill us with His love as we understand His truth, and as we know God's truth, then we start to practice what He tells us love looks like. See, so it changes us. It's a transformation. Romans chapter 12 tells us that we're renewed, our minds are renewed by God's truth. And so that's where Paul says, I want you to abound in knowledge and the truth of God so that his love fills you up. His truth fills you up because his truth is love and that it overflows to other people. So it's understanding what true love and what what it's comprised of. And then he says, I want you to abound in love in all knowledge and in all judgment. Now the word judgment here, is literally to let myself be judged by the standard that God has set. So when we talk about, here's the definition of love, love is a self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of the one loved. Now I'm going to be judged by that. I'm going to evaluate my life by that standard. That's where I want to abound. That's what Paul's praying for. So if I look at my life and I see the standard that God has set for love, He's willing to give up whatever it takes to meet the needs of the one He loves. Is that how I live? Paul wants them to abound in that. That their life exemplifies exactly what God exemplified. So I'm willing to be judged by the standard of love. The idea or the picture that Paul's painting here is is that you're in a court of law being examined by a judge of truth, who is God. And he says, as that judge looks at your life, what does the evidence of your life show? It's not what you say, it's not what you claim, it's not what you proclaim to live, it's the evidence. God is the righteous judge, God is the omniscient judge, and so God knows your life. He knows your heart, He knows your actions, He knows your motives, and so from His perspective what does your life say? How would you be judged according to God's standard of love? See, we don't get to make this assessment. We can't say, well, I love people, I love God. Our life demonstrates that, and it has to be compared with what God says true love is all about. So we don't get to assess ourselves and say, well, I meet the standard, I'm fine. We have to let God be the judge, and the Bible is here, to show us that we don't meet that standard. And then we have to submit to God so that He can correct that in us so that we can. And it's only as we live in His strength and in His power that we can overflow with His love. So are we willing to be judged by God's standard of love? See, and it's not just, do I love God? Okay, a lot of people say they love God. How do you know you love God? Oh, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, oh, I can't wait to praise him. Okay, great. But how does that show in your life toward other people? Because that's the real test. You can't love God and not love others. That's the whole message of 1 John. So do we love him as God loves him, as God loves us, and do we love others as God loves them? Are we willing to give up whatever it takes to meet their needs? So so Paul's asking, will the verdict in our lives be that we are characterized by love, or will God look down and see some flaws, some shortcomings that we still have, and all of us do, and are we willing to submit to God's truth so that he can change us and fill us with the truth to become what he wants us to be in love? That's this word judgment. God, Paul's praying, I pray that you would abound in love more and more, in both knowledge, understanding of the truth, and then once you have that knowledge, to, be, to let yourself be judged by that so that God can change you. Discernment. It's discernment as well. There's a, this idea of discernment. It's not just being judged, but understanding the standard that we're being judged by so that we can discern in our own lives where we need to change. All right? So here's what Paul's praying for. He says, I want you to abound in love, true love, more and more, self-sacrificial love, in understanding God's truth and in understanding that you are going to be evaluated by it. For what purpose? And he goes on in verse 10, that you may approve things that are excellent. Now, that's an interesting phrase that comes right after love. You'd think, okay, so that you can... Meet the needs of people, so that you can show God's love to other people. But he says, no, you need to understand what love is. You need to be filled with love. You need to be judged by love. You need to be changed by God's love, so that you can approve things that are excellent. Well, what does he mean by this phrase? Well, the word approve here is a reference to the judgment previously mentioned. Here's that discernment. Okay, So that I can prove, is the real word, what things meet the standard that God has set. So I can judge all things according to the standard of love. And we only approve those things that, mar- that bear the mark of love. So what is the mark of love, according to Paul? Excellence. So what does this word excellence mean then? In the Greek here, this word is translated to differ or surpass the ordinary. To differ from or surpass the ordinary. Let's look at what the ordinary idea of what love is. is. Love is, I'm nice to people. Love is, in the world, you know, oh, I have emotion for you. I feel good when I'm around you. But is that excellence? That's not God's standard of love, and so it's not excellence. It falls short. See, we're talking about hitting a mark. (coughs) If you were to uh, use the analogy of, a, of an archer aiming at a target. We're trying to teach someone how to shoot an arrow at a target. And they pull that arrow back and let it go, and it skims off the top of the target and goes off into the woods someplace. Would you say, oh, that was excellent? No. You say, okay, well, that was close. That was almost there. And so they pull back again and they shoot again, and this time it hits one of the outer rings. Is that excellence? No, excellence is when it hits right in the bullseye. And that's what Paul's talking about here. It's not things that are close to the middle. It's not things that seem to be what God talks about. It's things that are the standard of love. Things that are approved by God. Things that meet His qualification of what love should be. So if I'm nice to people sometimes, but then I go talk behind their back about them, am I approving things that are excellent in my life? No. In my mind, well, I've gotten close, and so that's excellent. And Paul says, no, you're missing the idea here. What you should be approving in love are things that are right at the center of the target of what God says love is. Nothing else is going to meet the mark. These things are... Things that, or the the lifestyle that we're talking about, is something that is different from the ordinary, different from what people want this definition to be. And it says surpassing. So it's surpassing the mark of good enough. Things that are excellent. See, love always strives for excellence, the center of the target. We're not satisfied with the status quo, we go a step farther. Jesus taught this, this principle when he said, if someone asks for your coat, give them your shirt as well. If someone asks you to go a mile, go two miles. Go beyond what people expect. Okay, That's what excellence is. So what does that look like? Go over to Philippians chapter 4 very quickly. And here's where I want to compare what we read in 1 Corinthians 13. Because Philippians 4, and let me paraphrase this or preface this, with this idea. If you read through the epistles, do this sometime. Do, to Pick any one of Paul's epistles to the churches. Start at chapter 1, read through the entire book, but do it in this context, Paul's describing Christian love. Then read through the book with that idea, looking for how Paul describes what Christian love looks like. It'll open your eyes to a whole new meaning, of what Paul's really trying to define for us. Okay? Philippians chapter 4 is about love. Okay? The whole New Testament is about Christ's love being shown in us. So we look at Philippians chapter 4, a familiar verse, verse 8. Philippians 4, verse 8. What does it say? It says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So how does that tie in with love and what love is supposed to be? Let me show you the comparison. Okay? Going back to 1 Corinthians 13 and if you want to you can go there and put your finger in it, but I'm just going to use the phrases from 1 Corinthians 13 that we read this morning and show you what Paul's saying here in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. All right? First he says here in verse 8, whatsoever things are true. In other words, whatsoever things are defined by God's truth, not what I think is true, but what God says is true. Okay? What what does 1 Corinthians 13 say about love? It rejoices in the truth. In what God says is right. Okay? So it's not just seeking truth, but uplifting truth as the standard. God's word, God's truth is the standard by which I will live. It's not a suggestion, it's not a nice commentary on life. It is the standard. That's what this word truth means. And true love rejoices that God has given us that standard. And I'm going to live by it. First John tells us that if we love God, His commandments are not grievous to us. We rejoice in God's truth, in His standard. Then the second word in verse 8, it says, Whatsoever things are honest. The word here actually can be interpreted honorable. Whatsoever things are honorable. Sober-minded, serious, or worthy of honor. What does First Corinthians say about true love? It does not behave itself unseemly; it behaves honorably. That which is worth honor. Gill, uh, one of the commentators, put it this way: the word could be described as grave or venerable in speech, action, even our attire, uh, in 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 how we approach life. What is our attitude about life? Are we serious about loving people and loving God, or is it just a, a, a byword for us? Is that our function? Is that our focus? To love God and love other people? Are we serious about that? Honorable. And then he says, those whatsoever things are just. The word here can be interpreted equity and holiness. We think of a judge, again, and he does that which is just. Justice and Punishment for wrongdoing. Justice demands reward for good. Okay? And so we look at this, it says equity and holiness is the idea. Holiness, when we talk about that, we have to, again, look at God as the standard. What does holiness mean? It means without sin. Perfect. That's what God has called us to. Now, is not possible for us to do that in and of ourselves, because in and of ourselves we are not... Uh, Capable of living a sinless life. But, if we live in Christ's life, if we live led by the Holy Spirit, God is never going to lead us to do something that is sin. So, the possibility exists for us to be holy, and that's what God has called us to, and that's what we should, should be striving for. Okay? So this is the idea that he's talking about here, just according to God's law of holiness, okay? And then in 1 Corinthians 13, what does it say? Love rejoices not in iniquity. See, it's not just that we don't do sin, it's that we hate sin, the way God does. It's appalling to us. And therefore, when we get our, our focus on God, when we understand what God is and what He wants us to be, sin becomes disgusting. And that's exactly what love is. Love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So just, giving to God what God requires. God requires holiness. And then that translates into our lives, giving to others what God requires. And what does He require of us? Self sacrifice to meet the needs of the one loved. So love seeks to emulate holiness in all areas of life without blame. And then we go on to the next word in Philippians 4.8. It says, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure. The word pure is a morally clean and chaste state. It means, again, without sin, but this time in a moral area. Okay, Without corruption. Without any speck of dirt. I've used this analogy before. You've heard probably the commercials about ivory soap being point whatever, 9, 4% pure. Okay, what does that mean? It means it's almost pure, but there's a little bit of stuff still in it. I've used this example. I had a cup of water, pure, clean water, sitting up here, and we took a little bleach cleaner and just poured a little bit in there, and then I offered it to anybody to drink, and no one would take it. Why? Because it wasn't pure anymore. So the idea that Paul's trying to give us here is that love, if we have true love for God, if we have true love for people, our lives, in our lives we will strive to be pure, 100% motivated and driven by love for God and love for other people. And when we let other things come in and distract us or sidetrack us from that motive, then we've de- defeated this idea of being pure, morally clean and chaste. Uh, Romans 13 Says, make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. When we live for our lusts, lusts are the opposite of love. Okay, our desires to satisfy our self, my self pleasing desire, I come first, I'm going to look out for number one. When that steps forward and interferes with our living for others and living for God, now we've just stepped outside of God's circle of purity. Okay? Now, let me put that in context of 1 Corinthians 13. What does Paul say love is? What does it do? Love seeks not her own. You see, purity, real purity in love, is living entirely for God and for others. When we insert ourselves into that equation, we are no longer pure as far as true love is concerned. Because now we're seeking our own. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 3 says, in fact, go to Ephesians. It's only a couple of pages back. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Let's go back to verse 2. Let's go back to verse 1 to get the whole context here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. There's God redeeming us from sin. Verse 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. In other words, The way the world lives. This is the way you used to live. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even as we were dead in trespasses and sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what Paul's saying here is this. That mindset that you have to live for yourself first and please yourself and walk on other people in doing that, that is where you used to be. Until Christ redeemed you. Now, when you experience God's love truly, and are filled with God's love truly, that mindset is no longer a part of your thinking. That's what you used to be, but that's not what love is. See, our thinking and motivation used to be geared toward pleasing myself. When we are abounding in love, what is our thinking and motivation geared toward? Pleasing God, serving others. Okay, so when we talk about this idea of purity, when we inject ourselves, we've lost that purity, as far as the purity and love. Then go back to Philippians 4 again. Uh, moving on, he says, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely. The word lovely is an interesting word here. The, the root of it comes from the word charis, which is the root word for grace. So what Paul's saying here is those things that are characterized by grace. Now what is grace? Well, let's look at God's example of grace. God showed his grace in giving us something we did not deserve. Did any of us merit uh, salvation and eternal life. Did any of us earn that right to have fellowship with God? No, the Bible is very clear. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. Okay, so none of us got to the place or can get to the place in our lives where God looks at us and says, oh, they're good enough now. I'm going to accept them into my, in my fellowship. The only way that can happen is for Christ to die, to shed his blood, so that our sins can be covered in his blood, so God can look at us through his righteousness and not our own. So when we talk about things that are lovely, things that are associated with grace or being, showing grace to others, what does love do? Love gives other people that which they do not deserve, including forgiveness. Now here's a myth. You can only forgive someone if they come and ask you for forgiveness. Really? Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount that if we are not forgiving, if we're not merciful, then God will not show mercy to us. If we are not forgiving, then God will not forgive us. Matthew chapter 5. Grace gives people the goodness that they do not deserve. That's the character of true love. 1 Corinthians, what does it say about things that are lovely? Things that are filled with grace or characterized by grace? It says, love suffers long and is kind. The word kind there is useful to people in a spiritual and physical way. Love is not easily provoked. So those people who are most annoying to us, those people who most want to derail our lifestyle and our peace, deserve what? According to love, grace, kindness, forgiveness. Long-suffering. Okay, You see this, and I think God ordained families for this very purpose, because this is where you see this manifest at a very young age. Okay, Brothers and sisters should love each other. That's what we teach them. And how is that demonstrated every day? Ah! ah! You know, banging heads and scratching and pushing and all the rest of it. Okay, That's our nature in our flesh. Yeah, We can't get along with people. People annoy me. I can't stand that guy. And so in love, what should our response be? the way God modeled that for us. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, Christ came to die for us. Even when we were alienated, when we rejected God, He still showed His love to us. And so when we're abound in true love, uh, it says things that are lovely or things that are characterized by grace, we give people love even when they don't deserve it. Let's just call it loving the unlovely. That's what God did for us. And so that's what this character of love is. 1 Corinthians 13, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Let me translate that for you. Practically, I'm not trying to twist Scripture, I'm trying to put it in the context of what Paul's talking about in all of his epistles. Okay, Love bears all things. That means I will not complain about those who I serve or the conditions that I serve in. Love suffers long. I can bear all things because I love other people and I love God. Love believeth all things. I can bear these things because I know love to others is the mark of those that love God. First John tells us that. And if I'm filled with God's love, that will be the characteristic of my life. Therefore, I believe that what the Bible says is true. Lots of people make excuses. Well, I just can't do that. You know, oh, that person, you don't understand... You know what? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if we love God, we will love others. So I believe what the Bible says. Believeth all things. And then it says hopeth all things. My hope for a happy ending in every circumstance is not based on what I get. It's not my good feelings or goodwill or, or pleasure that's important. But my hope for a happy ending is based on the promises of God to sustain me through it, and he will work all things together for my good. Hopeth all things. And then he says, endureth all things. Love endures all things. So, because I know that I will not complain, because I know that that's based in the promise of God, because I know that that's what the Bible says about love in my life, therefore I can endure, I can persevere, I can continue to be steadfast in my love for other people, regardless of the circumstances and the people that God brings into my life. Endureth all things. So you see, Paul gives us this picture of love all through the epistles. Okay? In, in Philippians 4 8, if you go back there very quickly, he says, okay, those things that are lovely, those things that embody grace. And then he says, those things that are of good report. Good report talks about that which is well spoken of by others, that which has a good name. Proverbs tells us, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. So what's our motivation? And what is the name that we're trying to establish? Are we trying to establish a name for ourselves? Oh, he's a great person. Or are we trying to establish that people will call us by God's name? He acts just like Christ did. See, that's the name that should be reported of us. That's what it's talking about when it says of good report. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Most men will proclaim their own goodness, but a faithful man, who can find? How many people have you met and you in talking with them, and it sounds like in all of their conversation, all they can talk about is how good they are, and how nice they are, and how great they are, and all the things they do for other people. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, is he trying to convince me or him? See, the Bible tells us that a person who's truly great will not talk about his own greatness. A person who truly lives in love will not have to talk about and convince other people that they're loving. They will have a good report because their life demonstrates it. 1 Corinthians 13 says, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. It means I don't have to talk about how loving I am because this is about God. Is about other people. And if I live in God's strength, if I live in God's love, if I live the way I'm supposed to, sacrificing myself for the good of others, then God at least will have a good report of me, and that's all that matters. So who am I trying to please? Am I trying to make everybody talk well about me, or would I rather have God think well of me? Good report. A good name is established through our works, through our good works, which are recognized by God and others as virtuous. Uh, I came across a phrase many years ago, and it, I think it applies here. It says, Great men are not remembered for what they did for themselves, but what they did for others. Is that the way we live? James chapter 4 tells us to humble ourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift us up. God gives us the good name. It's not something we can establish for ourselves. Matthew 23, 12, Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Love does not lift itself up. Love does not have to proclaim its own goodness. Love does not seek to establish a name for itself. Love is not puffed up. It's not about itself. Then he says, of good report, and then if there's anything that is of virtue and anything that is of praise, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Virtue is that which is valor or excellence. It's the same word that we saw in Philippians chapter 1. Approving those things that are of valor, that are of excellence, that have virtue, that are marked by Christian love. And he says, and those things that are of praise, those things that should be commended, those are the things that are excellent. And he says, this is what you should think about. This is where your focus should be. Not on serving myself because that's not a mark of true love. It should be on loving God, serving God, and serving others as a result of that. Because that's the things that are the marks of true love. Those are the things we think about. That's what God sets as the standard. A man once said what you you are I'm sorry, we are not what we think we are, but we are what we think. Think about that. We are not what we think we are, but we are what we think. What do our minds dwell on? That defines what we are. Proverbs 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What your heart is focused on is what you will become. This morning we talked in Sunday school about coveting. Do I want things that I should not have that are apart part from God's will for me? And what am I willing to sacrifice to get them? If I'm willing to sacrifice others, if I'm willing to sacrifice my fellowship with God to get something, then I really don't love God. That's why the commandments are all based on love for God. So when Paul says, approve all things excellent, what he means is to discern and live by what is characterized by a mark of excellent love for other people, right in the middle of the target. And he says that over and over and over and over throughout the epistles. We see it in Philippians, we see it in Corinthians. Next week we're going to see it in Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, and Romans chapter 14. Okay. So he says, here's what you're striving for, that you may approve. I'm looking at the wrong chapter, excuse me. It's in in Philippians chapter 1, that you may approve things that are excellent that ye may be sincere without offense until the day of Christ. The word sincere is an interesting word. Paul, by the way, doesn't just randomly choose words to make it sound nice. Okay? There's all meaning in every word that he gives us here. The reason he chose the word sincere is because what it means is the idea behind it in the Greek is to be tested so that it's shown to be pure. The word we have in our English language sincere comes from a Latin word, Sinceritas, which is compounded in of two words, sine and sera. Sine means without, sera means wax. And this word came from, here's a little etymology for you. Okay, This word came from people who would inspect honey. And they would hold it up to the sun because they could see through it and they could see if there were any little specks of the bees' wax that were left in it. Had it been filtered enough to be pure honey, or were there still some impurities in it? That's the word sincere, without wax. And that's what Paul's saying, so that ye may be without those impurities that tend to draw us away from loving God and loving other people. So we again we have this idea of judging. Or judgment, letting ourselves be judged. It's showing what is true by comparing it to the standard. What is the standard? God. So how close are we to God? What does our character look like in relation to Christ's character? What does our life look like and our motivations and our actions and our thoughts? What do they look like in comparison with Christ? That's what we're to be compared by. He says, so that you may be sincere. The purpose is so that you may draw closer and closer to become like Christ so that eventually you will be like him in perfection. Now, we won't get there till we are raised from the dead and go to heaven with him. But that's our goal. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 4. So we have this idea of judging. Our lives will expose us for what we truly are compared to God's standard. And if our lives are characterized by love in everything, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to help someone else in love. If that's the pattern of our life, then Paul says we're to be shown in sincerity. And then he says, without offense. In other words, not leading into sin, and not led into sin. Now this is one of the most misinterpreted, I I say that a lot, and I shouldn't, but again, I've, I've heard this, and the related passages in Scripture, what we're going to look at next week, and hopefully we can see exactly what Paul's teaching us. This without offense, not offending other people. Okay? That's Paul's purpose here in Philippians. He says you're abounding in love, so you don't offend other people. What does that mean? It means don't lead them into sin, and don't be led into sin yourself. Okay? That's a practical definition of it. Go to, Philipp- go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll give you a preview of what's coming next week. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is the infamous chapter on eating meat offered to idols. It's not just about meat. There's a principle of love involved here, and that's what Paul's focusing on. Okay? Just look at verse 13. We'll look more in depth next week. But at the end of the chapter, he says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. What he's saying is that if I eat something that I think is okay, meat that's offered to idols, and in my sincerity, in my conscience, it's okay before God, but if my doing that causes somebody else to do something that is not consistent with their conscience, then I've done wrong. And I've wronged them. Because love gives up whatever it needs to in order to help somebody else. Okay? So he says, without offense. Don't live... Not caring about how your life affects other people. We are responsible for how our life affects other people. That's what Paul's saying here. Romans chapter 14. Again, Romans chapter 14 is another of one of Paul's dissertations on what we'll call Christian liberty. But it's not about the liberty we have to do things, it's about the love that we have from God to give up things for the benefit of others. In in, in Romans chapter 14, verse 15 and 16, he says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is good for you, a good thing, be spoken of as evil. Let not your good be evil spoken of. That's the context of that verse. Those things which you think are okay, those things which are fine for you to do, you're willing to give up for the benefit of other people. See, that's what Christian love is. That's the foundation of Christian liberty. That's what we're going to look at next week. So I'm not going to give you the whole message right now. Okay? But what he says is be sincere without offense, not offending other people in how you live. And we have to understand how our life affects others and leads them in ways and what our influence is on them. That's important. Why? Why? Because love doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't just, isn't just concerned about my life. Love is concerned about the quality and the perfection and the purity in other people's lives. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. See, it's not a matter of what's right for me. What it's a matter of is what's good for other people. That's true Christian love. So everything in our lives is judged by God according to whether it's beneficial in love for others. Is how I live benefiting other people? That's the test of love. So Christ desires our lives to be genuine in our love for others so that we're blameless in causing others to sin. That's what Paul says here when he says that ye may prove what is excellent, not leading people to offense. Blameless. And then he says, this is your goal until the day of Christ. That means the rule of sacrificial love is a standard of Christian living until when? For 50 years? Until I retire until I'm not strong enough to do it anymore. No, until Christ returns. So here's the, the, the rule by which we should live, until Christ returns. Love is the hallmark of the Christian life, period. Nothing has changed since Christ left the earth. He established a standard. In fact, God established it way back at the beginning. Christ lived it and fulfilled it for us, so we know what it would look like. And he says, okay, here's the model that you live by, until you go to heaven. That's it. And he says, those who persevere until the end are his true children. They will manifest his love in sacrificial love. First John tells us that. If we say we love one another and we hate our brother, the love of God is not in us. Those who love God will love one another. Now, we're not going to be perfect. I understand that. But this is our goal. This is what we're striving for. And so every time we hear a message, every time we read the scripture, every time we hear a, a, a read a commentary or a book or, or someone says to us something and it stings us, and you go, oh, I'm not really like that. That's the flesh saying, you know what, you've got to defend yourself. You've got to make sure that you establish your reputation as a good person. Yes, you're really loving, even though you may treat some people badly once in a while. No. That's not the mark of love. The mark of love is willing to sacrifice myself. It's willing to take constructive criticism from people. Hey, you know what? I noticed something in your life that doesn't really jive with what God tells us we should be. Instead of being defensive, throwing up the walls, we should say, you know what? I want to be more like Christ, so let's get rid of the stuff that's keeping me from that. That's what love is. And then in verse 11, very quickly, He says, here's the result of that. If this is your goal, if you're striving in love to be what God wants you to be, then here's what will result in verse 11. He says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. What are the fruits of righteousness? What righteousness do we have in and of ourselves? None. So if we don't live in Christ... If we don't do all of this in Christ, as Paul said, I can do all things through Christ, and the context is I can give up all of this, I can suffer all of this, I can be hungry, I can be thirsty, I can be homeless, I can be naked, I can be poor, I can do all this because it's Christ that lives in me, and all that doesn't matter. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, Christ's righteousness. Galatians chapter 5 calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. He says, the fruits of righteousness. Your goal and the result of this is that you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness. That which is sown in Christian love. If your works do not profit you or others spiritually, then they're not the works of righteousness. So think about that. Anything that you spend your time and efforts doing that does not promote the spiritual growth in your own life or in others' lives, basically is a waste of time. Now, we could go on and take another hour talking about that one. That's another message. I'm not going to go there today. Okay? But he says, fruits of righteousness, through fruit of the Spirit, that which is marked by Christian love. And he says, it doesn't come out of yourself. Look at the second phrase. He says, which are by Christ Jesus. So you can't manufacture this artificial life of love. If you don't have Christ in you, if you're not controlled by the Holy Spirit, if you're not submitted to following his leading and letting his love flow through you, then everything you do is going to be nothing. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. If I do all these things, if I give myself, if I, if I sacrifice myself, if I have faith so I can move mountains, if I give everything I have to feed the poor, if I don't have the love of Christ in me, it all means nothing. So there's too many people in this world that are, are depending on their humanitarian efforts to put them in good graces with God so they can be accepted into heaven. And it's not going to happen. If our love is not marked by God's love, if it's not rooted in God's love, if it doesn't flow from God's love in us, if Christ doesn't control our lives, then everything we do is a waste of time. It only comes by Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says, verse 11. And then he says, why? to my praise, so people can talk about me, so people can look at me and say, how great of a Christian and how loving he is? No. And here's where it all comes down to the real, the real crux of the matter. Unto the glory and praise of God. When people look at my life and see the love of God flowing out of me, they're not going to talk about me. They're going to talk about how great of a God I serve. When people look at me and see the love that comes out of my life because God is part of my life. They're not going to talk about how great of a Christian I am. They're going to talk about what a loving God we have. See, real love does not focus on me. Real love brings the focus to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, whether we eat or drink, even the most mundane things in life, and that's in the context of eating meat offered to dietals and drinking wine. Whether we eat or drink, what's the purpose? To give God the glory. If we're doing it because I want to do it, and I'm free to do it, and I don't care how it affects other people, we don't give God the glory. Because that's not the mark of Christian love. So Paul says, this is my prayer, that your love may grow. And I'm going to read this. Out of, another past, out of another translation, it says, that, my, that your love may grow ever richer and richer in knowledge and keen discernment. So as to distinguish differences, that you may be unsullied and blameless in relation to anyone stumbling, as you face the day of Christ, abounding in such fruit of righteousness as come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, the Christian life is all about love. It's loving God first, And when we truly do that, we will love others as a result. Here's the question. Love is a self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of the one loved. What are we not willing to give up to help someone else? That's the thing that has become an idol in our lives that is keeping us from loving God and loving other people the way we should. If there's something we have to have, if we have to have our rights, if we have to have our freedom, if we have to be able to do things in our liberty in Christ, regardless of how they affect other people, then we don't understand God's love. We're not abounding in love. See, nothing is more important than demonstrating our love for God by how we love other people. And love starts with what I'm willing to give up for the benefit of other people are you growing in love for other people are you abounding in love the way paul prayed for the church at philippi are you growing in discernment and understanding of what love should look like in every area of your life it's not a suggestion god holds us accountable for this this is a command love one another How are we doing? My prayer is the same as Paul's, that we might all continue to grow in knowledge and understanding of what true love is, so that we might one day be presented blameless before his throne. I tell you what, that's what I'm living for. To stand before Christ and have him say to me, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that judgment is going to be made based on whether I loved God with all my heart and how I love people because of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do know that you've given us all of these things for our admonition and our learning. Every one of us sometimes looks at our own lives and sees things the way we want to see them rather than the way you see us. And in this area of love, it's very easy to be deceived in thinking things about ourselves that are not true. We want to be loving people. We want to have a reputation of love, and yet so often we fail. And we fail because we're looking at ourselves, we're pleasing ourselves, we're serving ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us understand what love really looks like, the way you lived it, the way you showed it. Lord, help that become our goal, our motivation, our, our hallmark that we live for. Not because of what we are and not because of what we can gain from it, but because we love you and we want other people to have your blessing in their lives. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would be ingrained in our hearts, that we'd meditate on these principles, that it would change us, that your spirit would use it to strip away those things that are keeping us from truly loving you and loving other people so that we might fulfill your purpose for us on this earth and help us to do it until the day of Jesus Christ when we can stand before your throne and hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And it's only through your power and your strength because of your grace that we have this opportunity. And so we give you the praise, we give you the glory for all that you're going to do in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.